Hey, are you sick of being cooped up inside for the past year? How about getting out and also doing something to support Israel and the Jewish people? Join us for our first ever Bless Israel Virtual 5K. We've put together a three-mile path that actually walks you through a route in Israel. You can walk or run the week of April 12th at your own pace and in your own timing. Join an international community of believers who are all committed like you to Israel. For more details, go to a adjewandagentiledisgust.org. Jesus didn't show up at a random point in history and do what he did that just happened to work out well for the New Testament writers. He wasn't inventing a new religion. He died as the Passover lamb on the eve of Passover during Passover week, was buried in a tomb according to Isaiah 53, and that he resurrected was the fulfillment of promises made to Israel. This is Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, who in his death and resurrection opened the way to salvation, not only for our people Israel, but for all people who would call upon his name and spirit and in truth. Welcome to A Jew and a Gentile Discuss. I'm your host, Carly Berna. And I'm Ezra Benjamin. We're a Jew and a Gentile who both believe in Jesus and believe that there's value in looking at history as well as today's world and the headlines through both a Jewish and a Christian lens. If you've been listening the past three weeks, We've been in a series. We've been talking about the difference between Easter and Passover. Then we talked about Easter and Passover foods. And this week, we're going to be talking about Holy Week, but more from a Jewish perspective. So let's discuss. So Ezra, as I mentioned, we've, you know, we've kind of summarized Lent starting with Ash Wednesday and talked, you know, just about the differences between Passover and Easter. But this week, we're going to talk specifically about Holy Week, which really starts with Palm Sunday. Um, And when many people think of Palm Sunday, you know, like for me growing up, we're, we're standing outside, we're holding the palm branches. We actually crafted ours into little crosses. And I don't know if that's like a Catholic thing or just something that we did. Um, but the verse that often comes to mind is Jesus um, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And that verse is John 12, 12 to 14, where it says, The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written. And then right there where it says, as it is written, it's referencing Zechariah 9, 9. And it states, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So as a Christian, it's kind of the entrance to Holy Week. We're referencing Jesus coming in on a donkey with the palm branches, all of that. And obviously there's some, you know, Old Testament reference there as well. From a Jewish lens, you know, from your perspective as a believer in Jesus, but someone who's Jewish, what what do you think of when you're thinking of Palm Sunday? Yeah, I think, you know, just to zoom out a minute, because I know, Carly, we have a portion of our audience actually comes from a Jewish background and is trying to learn what's the Christian perspective on all of this. So real quickly, when we say Holy Week, which is this this particular episode, we're trying to to explore that through a Jewish lens. We're talking about Palm Sunday, through seven or eight days later, depending on how you want to count, Easter Sunday, right? So Palm Sunday through Resurrection Day or Easter Sunday. And that's what we're exploring today from a Jewish perspective. And piggybacking on on kind of the, the latter part of what you said, whenever in the New Testament we see the word as it is written, right? I think sometimes we have a, tem- a tendency or even like a temptation 
when we're reading and we see as it is written, we almost gloss over that, right? It's like, okay, he, Paul's talking about something, John's referencing something, Matthew's, you know, digging into history. Okay, moving on. Good, I get it. Here's their source material. But looking through a Jewish lens, especially Matthew, but also John, the Gospels were written primarily to a Jewish audience, also to all who would come to faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through Jesus, through Yeshua, we say in Hebrew, but primarily to an audience of either Jewish sympathizers, Jewish seekers, or new Jewish believers. Okay, so that's the context. And whenever we see the words, as it is written, what we can almost put in there, if we want to replace those words, we can say, in order to fulfill what the prophets or the forefathers said when they said. So it's, as it is written, see, behold, O Zion, your king is coming to you riding on a donkey. In essence, what John is saying here is, Jesus found a donkey, a young donkey who had never been ridden on before, and he gets on this donkey and he's riding into Jerusalem in order to fulfill what the prophet uh, Zechariah saw when he said. Okay, so that's just, you know, put that in your back pocket as you're reading the New Testament, not just the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, but also Paul's letters and the really the rest of the entirety all the way through Revelation. Whenever you see the phrase, as it is written, understand that these writers are appealing to a Jewish audience to prove, according to the Old Testament, or we can say the Jewish Bible, how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything Israel was waiting for, for the Messiah to be. So that's that's kind of the context there of as it is written and and what's happening here in this first of four examples we're looking at today with Palm Sunday. Okay, so the donkey is the fulfillment of Zechariah nine nine. But what about you know the rest of the picture? You know Jesus is riding the into Jerusalem. There everyone's standing there yelling Hosanna with palm branches. What is the rest of that? Yeah, there's a number of really interesting things happening here that the Jewish audience, that first century Jewish audience would have understood very clearly. This is both a fulfillment of some things and, if you will, a prophetic down payment of some other things. Ezra, what the heck do you mean by that? Okay, so what's being fulfilled here? The language, Carly, I think, you know, sometimes we think that Jesus shows up on the scene, right, in around zero BCE, 0 AD, and he invents this, this new religion, right? Jesus Christ invents this religion called Christianity, and he sort of emerges out of nowhere and just uses the Jewish context and the Roman uh, oppressive Roman occupation context to do a new thing. But really, as we're going to kind of hammer here over and over again, so our audience can see it with a number of examples, really, Jesus is emerging as the fulfillment of of some key foundational promises that were put in place. If you want to go back all the way to Genesis 3, go back that far, but certainly through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through Moses, through the people of Israel journeying in the wilderness, and then even when Israel's in Israel and kicked out of Israel for our disobedience under the exiles, the prophets foresaw. So uh, one of those examples is here. You know, the crowd is shouting. Well, the crowd, first of all, is picking up palm branches, right? They're cutting down palm branches and they're laying them on the ground. And they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Well, where does that word come from? It's not something that was invented, so there's a bunch of great Christian worship music. Hosanna in Hebrew is actually Hoshiana, which means save, O Lord, I pray. Well, where does that come from? Psalm 118. And this is a fantastic, really, we can say a messianic psalm. And what I mean by that is declaring the goodness of God to save his people and to save all who would call upon him. 
And this Psalm 118 is one of, Carly, what's known as the Psalms of Ascent. Well, where are we ascending? They were the Psalms that were memorized, you know, in early childhood. Parents would teach them to their children. Rabbis would teach them to their to their disciples, to their followers in the Jewish community. And then whenever you would go up to Jerusalem, because we were commanded as a people to go up three times a year during Passover, which is the context of Easter week or Holy Week, and then about seven weeks later during Shavuot, Feast of Weeks, and then in the fall during Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles, whenever Jewish men of age would appear before the Lord and go to worship him in the temple in Jerusalem, you would go up the steps to the temple. And as you were ascending these steps, you would stop on each step and you would actually sing or recite the Psalms of Ascent. And one of those, um, one of those Psalms, one of the great ones, I mean, they're all great, but one of my favorites, I'll say, is Psalm 118. And you've probably heard some of the language here, but understand that John is drawing on this psalm uh, and the crowds were actually drawing on this psalm of ascent as they're acknowledging their belief that Jesus is the one. This is the king of Israel. This is the one we've waited for as he's coming down the mountain on a donkey off the Mount of Olives, ready to ascend, to literally walk up into the temple. So they're proclaiming this psalm of ascent. And some of the some of the verses, verse 15, for example, says shouts of joy and salvation resound in the tents of the righteous. And actually salvation in Hebrew is Yeshua and uh, for those who have listened to us any length of time, you know that Jesus' name in Hebrew, even said in Aramaic also during that first century, was Yeshua. It's the same root word, salvation. You'll call his name Yeshua because he'll save his people from their sins. So shouts of joy and Yeshua resound from the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord performs with valor. And then in verse 19, it says, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I'll give you thanks, O God, for you answered me and you have become my Yeshua, my salvation. And then listen here. Think about the context of Jesus who's being lauded as the Messiah, as the king coming in on the donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9. And yet Jesus knows that he's actually entering Jerusalem to die. He's entering to suffer and die for the sins of the nation. Verse 22 says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And then verse 25, O Lord, save us, we pray. And in Hebrew, that's Anna Adonai, please, O Lord, Hoshiana, Hosanna, save us, we pray. So the crowds, Carly, are, are, are drawing on this psalm of ascent, which they would have been saying anyway this day as they're coming into Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover, which is a few days out. And they're proclaiming, this is the Lord's doing. This is salvation, which has come to us. We believe Jesus is the one. And so they're proclaiming, O Lord, Hoshiana, save us. It's this fulfillment of Jesus, in essence, triumphally entering Jerusalem, right? Palm Sunday is also known as the triumphal entry. And it's funny because on the one hand, he's coming into shouts of praise, but he knows he there's victory to be had on the other side of the cross. But Jesus already knows at this point, the Father has shown him, the, the Holy Spirit's shown him in that time alone with him, you're coming in to die. So as much as it's a triumphal entry, it's also an entry onto condemnation and death. Jesus will die on the cross before this week is out. And we're going to talk more about that in a minute. So 
to, to answer the second part of the question, okay, we have Hosanna, but what about the palm branches? Where does this come from? We understand in Exodus and Leviticus as, as God's through Moses giving the Torah or the 613 commandments to the children of Israel before they um, exit the wilderness and enter the promised land, the land of Canaan. He, uh, Moses shares with the, the children of Israel the, the kind of cycle of Jewish holidays. And we understood that the capstone of this Jewish year was the Feast of Tabernacles at the end of the harvest every autumn called Sukkot. And about this time, there's actually a commandment to cut down palm branches and leafy, leafy uh, tree branches and to cover temporary dwellings called Sukkot or tabernacles that each family would build with these branches. And so the idea of cutting down palm branches was really a Sukkot idea, a Feast of Tabernacles idea, not a Passover or Pesach idea. So... A lot of the Bible critics, especially in the Jewish community who kind of want to tear down the legitimacy or the truthfulness of the New Testament, say, okay, well, clearly the gospel writers are wrong here because they're using Feast of Tabernacles imagery, these palm branches during Passover, therefore this story must be inaccurate. Uh, not quite. The original context here is Feast of Tabernacles in the Jewish culture, but remember that at this time for decades, if not more, Jerusalem and the land of Israel have been under the occupation of the Greek and then the Roman empires. And so during this time, palm branches kind of transformed not only to represent this feast of ingathering, this feast of completion of a harvest, but also to represent triumph and victory in the Roman culture. And again, we got to understand when we're reading the Gospels, reading the New Testament, what was the first century Judeo-Roman, not Judeo-Christian, because there was no such thing as Christianity yet. Jesus is, Jesus is coming to fulfill his identity as the Passover lamb, more on that in a minute. But what's the Judeo-Roman context here? And these people, these sons and daughters of Israel are waving palm branches to say, this is the one, this man, this Messiah is the one we've waited for because he's going to bring us victory and triumph over all the oppression we've seen. And so this is the Messiah, the, the son of David, who's going to march into Jerusalem and he's going to kick out the Romans and he's going to bring us the military and political victory we've always expected the Messiah to bring. And we believe, according to the scriptures, one day he will do just that. But we understand because we have the benefit of looking backwards into history here and knowing how these gospel stories end, Carly, that actually he's coming in to be the suffering servant at this point. And so the crowd was fulfilling Zechariah. They're fulfilling Psalm 118, but they're really just foreshadowing the eventual triumph and victory. What most Jewish people welcoming, lauding Jesus to come in didn't understand is that he had to die before he could bring the victory they'd waited for. That was the that was the scandal, even to this day in the Jewish community. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but that's the, Paul talks about it, that's the offense or the scandal of the death of Jesus, is we expected the Messiah, son of David, the great triumphant deliverer. We laid down palm branches on the road because he was coming in to get us the victory and the power. And he said, no, I have to die. I wish this cup could pass from me, but this is the Father's will because this is the only way that you, O Israel, and all those Jew or Gentile who would call upon the name of the Father can be reconciled to him is through my blood. So uh, it's, it's a partial fulfillment. It's a down payment on some prophetic fulfillment, but it's also kind of a prophetic pointer to, to days yet to come. 
when Jesus will rule and reign in Jerusalem. And he can do that because he conquered the last enemy under his feet, which was death when he died on the cross. From Palm Sunday, going forward to what we'll call Maundy Thursday, which we'll debate in a minute over which day it really is, is known as the Last Supper. And if you're looking for a scriptural reference, Mark 14, 18 to 26 summarizes the Last Supper or you know communion where Jesus is sitting with his disciples. He takes the bread, he takes the cup. Um, and he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When I was growing up, I didn't realize that this was a Passover meal. I thought it was, you know, it was just the last meal, the last supper that Jesus had before he died. Uh, you know, I pictured the the very popular art that goes along with it. And then, you know, when practicing communion, it was just, you know, we're, we're repeating Jesus's last meal. But talk about how this is tied to the, an actual Passover meal. Yeah, great questions. The roof of all those uh, cathedrals and churches in Italy, right, that have these great frescoes of the Last Supper with all these yeah. Norwegian men with long flowing locks of hair. None of them, of course, are balding because that could never possibly be in Bible characters. And Judas, right, leaning out with that menacing look that's been copied so many times for serious or comedic purposes. But anyway, sort of, but not quite, let me say, in response to those paintings. Well, wh what do I mean by that? Let's talk about the actual meal, and let's talk about the date, and let's talk about the elements of the meal. So like you said, I imagine you understood the Last Supper to be kind of the context of communion, right? Jesus said, this, is, this bread is my body. And this cup is my blood, the new covenant shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Not untrue, but that was just right. Like the Last Supper is how Jesus seemingly out of nowhere inaugurates this communion meal that the church would carry forward as a sacrament. Right. Like that. That's the idea. Right. It's his, it's his Last Supper. You know, like you probably would choose like, you know, coffee as your Last Supper. Jesus, he chose the bread and the cup. Yeah. If it was my last meal, there was just everybody would get like a coffee pot and some Biscoff cookies, and we'd be good, right? But we read that and go, oh, yeah, well, Jesus chose, I guess he must have liked bread, and he chose a cup because that would be symbolic of his blood. Yeah, wine, juice looks like blood, got it. But then there's these other mysterious things going on, right? Like he who dips, who dips his bread in the bowl with me or who dips in the bitter herbs with me is the one who's going to betray me. Well, did Jesus just like eating incredibly bitter food? Like, was he a horseradish fanatic? No, there's something else going on here that we have to understand. But before I get to the elements in the table, let's talk about the time frame. first of all, in the Christian calendar, but then we'll back it up to what's going on in the Jewish calendar. So as you said, Maundy Thursday, which I, as you were saying that, I asked myself, do I know what Maundy means? The answer is no. And then I asked myself, does any of our listening audience possibly know what Maundy means? And the answer is probably very few. So it does mean foot washing. Oh, it does? Yes. All right. You learned something. Maybe we'll do like a trivia thing, a few podcast episodes from now to see who was listening. Okay. The foot washing Thursday. Okay. That's helpful. So we know before this meal, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Without going into that, that could be a whole podcast on humility and what's Jesus really doing and why did he have to become a servant to be confirmed as Lord. But that's a story for another episode. So they're eating this meal and Maundy Thursday, 
And the question is, was it really Thursday, right? Like, okay, Palm Sunday, yeah, I think it was the first day of the week. The scriptures are clear. On the first day of the week, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. Got it. Maundy Thursday and Good Friday. I actually think, Carly, that it was Maundy Wednesday, that this Last Supper was eaten on a Wednesday evening, and that Good Friday was actually Good Thursday. Ezra, you sacrilege, you heretic, how could you possibly say that? I'm I'm uh, unsubscribing from this podcast. Hold your horses. I'll explain in a minute how I get there. And let me say before we even go down that road, I could be wrong. Is this an issue of salvation and righteousness before God? Absolutely not. The important thing is faith in what happened on whatever day of a week that was, not on what particular day it happened. But I think Maundy Thursday was really probably Maundy Wednesday. And what's happening here? It's a Passover meal. How do we know that? Because there's unleavened bread, there's a cup, and there's bitter herbs. The only time, the only time, Carly, in the year on the Jewish calendar when you would intentionally be eating a bowl full of bitter herbs is during what's called the Passover Seder. Seder or Seder in Hebrew literally means order. So it's like an order by which we tell the story of Passover. God commanded the children of Israel, I'm bringing you out with a mighty hand and outstretched arm from slavery in Egypt, and I'm commanding you, I'm obligating you as a people to teach your children, and your children are to teach their children, and on and on you go from generation to generation, because in every generation, we're supposed to consider as though we ourselves were freed from slavery. It's the story of our people. Without it, we would never have survived. God preserved us. And so that's the idea here. And so the Seder meal, the bread that Jesus is taking, why is he taking bread made without yeast? Because God commanded the children of Israel, when you remember the Passover, you're to remember that you didn't even have time when I freed you from slavery in Egypt to let your bread rise, make bread made without leaven, without yeast, to remember that it was quickly that I delivered you out from under slavery in Egypt. And so it's unleavened bread, not just because Jesus was gluten intolerant or something, it's because he was doing a Passover Seder or a low carb or what. He's actually eating bread made without leaven. And this cup represents the four promises of God. I'm going to save you. I'm going to deliver you from out on, out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I'm going to bring you out from Egypt. I'll deliver you with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. I'll take you to my people to be my people. I'm going to take you to myself to be a people, a nation of worshipers for me. And so each cup at the Passover Seder of grape juice, fruit of the vine, if you will, or probably new wine, kind of lower alcohol content wine, most likely in the year that Jesus is celebrating this, each cup represented a promise God made to the children of Israel. And this final cup is, I'll take you to myself, like I'll almost like a bridegroom taking a bride. I'm going to take you to myself to be for me, to be united with me as a people. That's what's happening here. And then one of the other items, or I'll say two of the other items that had to be present in a Passover Seder meal were bitter herbs. Well, why bitter herbs? It's called maror in Hebrew. Bitter herbs, you were commanded, we were commanded actually to eat the meal with bitter herbs. Think of horseradish, but don't just think like a little bit of horseradish on like a filet mignon. Think of a scoop full of hot horseradish on a dry piece of unleavened bread that you swallow which is pretty much what every Jewish family in every country where we're scattered has done every year for 2,500 something years or more. We eat bitter herbs and it literally makes you choke and it makes your eyes water because we're to remember the choking, shocking bitterness of having been slaves. It's a commandment. And we're supposed to remember the bitterness that actually it cost the death of a firstborn in the entire nation of Egypt to buy our people out of slavery. 
It wasn't for nothing. It wasn't with no cost. You know, we think, oh yeah, the plagues, right? The lice, the water turned to blood, you know, the gnats, the boils, but the final plague, uh, check your scriptures if you don't believe me, is actually the one that brings Pharaoh in his hard-heartedness temporarily to his knees is that every firstborn male, human or livestock in the entire nation of Egypt dies so that Israel can be freed. That's That was the, the ransom money for Israel's deliverance was the death of the firstborn. And so we eat these bitter herbs to remember this was not a happy thing. The deliverance is a, is a miraculous thing. It's worth rejoicing over, but it wasn't a happy or a light occasion under which we were brought out from slavery. And so Jesus is saying the one who dips his bread in these bitter herbs with me will betray me and now put the context together. So Judas and Jesus both dip. And Jesus chokes and his eyes probably water out of the bitterness of knowing that one who had traveled with him for years, right? For years at this point, to whom he'd entrusted himself, one of the 12 is actually going to sell him out because of envy and greed. And it's a tremendous thought. And Jesus is looking at Judas, literally choking on something similar to horseradish or like mustard root or wasabi or something as he's looking at Judas, literally eyes watering, choking. So that's the context there. And then the fourth thing that has to be present, at, or at least during Bible times, had to be present at every Seder meal was, of course, the lamb, right? Take for yourselves a lamb on the 10th day of the month of Nisan. And I believe, Carly, that the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday that we talked about, actually happened on the 10th day of Nisan. When Israel was to take a lamb into their home, Jesus comes into Jerusalem as the lamb who would take away the sin of the world. And then it says on the 14th day of the month at twilight, you slaughter that lamb and you put the blood on the doorposts of your house so that when I come to judge Egypt and to judge the nations, I'll pass over you. I'll spare you from death because I see the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of your house. And Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. So in essence, he's taking the elements of a Passover Seder and he's saying, I am that lamb. You're commanded every, every year and every generation to slaughter a lamb. But guess what? I'm the lamb, not who causes death to pass over and it has to be redone every year. I'm the lamb whose blood takes away the sin of the world once and for all. And when the father sees the blood, my blood on the doorposts of your heart He'll pass over you and uh, give you that mercy and that forgiveness rather than judgment. So that's the context of this Last Supper. And Jesus is showing showing the disciples, hey, the, the, the provision from heaven you've waited for, bread, man doesn't live by bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of God, I'm that bread. My body broken is enough for you for sustenance. This cup, the promises I've made, my blood is the fulfillment, the yes and amen to all the promises the Father's made to our people. My flesh as the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world is enough for the forgiveness, forgiveness of your sins. And he's confirming to them, I am the one you've waited for. All The Passover Seder was a point to me. It was like a down payment on what Jesus would fulfill. He's not, Carly, he's not inventing a new meal here for the sake of the church. He's bringing prophetic fulfillment to the elements of a meal commanded for the children of Israel to keep hundreds of years before saying, I am the one. I'm the one in whom the prophets, who the prophets foresaw. I'm the one the forefathers trusted in in faith. And so that 
then brings us to that second question. Okay, so Jesus is holding a Seder, but Israel's commanded to keep a Seder on the eve of the uh, what's called Erev Pesach, on Passover proper, on the 14th of Nisan. And yet, if he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, I'm kind of skipping to our next topic here on his crucifixion, then he had to die to fulfill that prophecy on the afternoon before Passover, which would have been the next day. Right. If Maundy Thursday is really Maundy Wednesday, then Good Friday is really Good Thursday. So how can Jesus be eating a Passover Seder 24 hours before the rest of the children of Israel were doing it in the year that he's crucified? What we know from the context of Jewish life in the first century is that rabbis, remember his disciples call him teacher or rabbi, uh, more intimately Rabboni, which is like my rabbi, my teacher. Rabbis would take their own followers away one night before those followers would go do their own seders and their own families, and they would teach them the significance of the elements. So Jesus, the teacher, the rabbi, the leader of his disciples, is doing the same. I believe he was actually taking his followers away the night before they knew that they were going to have to hold their own seders with their own families, their spouses and children if they had them or at least their extended family, and he's saying, let me teach you about the Seder. Here's what it really means. Here's what it was pointing to the whole time. So that resolves, we can say, the discrepancy about, well, how did Jesus celebrate a Seder if he had to die the next day as the lamb? Was it early? Is it inaccurate? I believe that's what's happening here, is he was actually conducting a teaching Seder. So communion as we know it was instituted, was inaugurated as a teaching Seder for the disciples to whom Jesus had most closely, most intimately uh, entrusted himself, Carly. So, so much going on here, uh, so much to explore. It's like every verse there, every sentence, every element on that table had had scriptural significance. Yeah, and the way you're explaining it, it's like we're right there. And I can only imagine what it would be like to be in that room as all of this was unveiling and, and happening. So before we get to the crucifixion and the resurrection that you just mentioned, I just want to remind our audience that uh, this podcast, A Jew and a Gentile Discuss, is supported by your donation. So if you like what you hear, please support us by giving one time or monthly. You can go to a Jew and a Gentile org, And we also offer our Lost Tribes coffee that you can get as often as you'd like. And all the details of that are on the website. So we appreciate you listening and supporting us so we can continue delivering the content to you. So back into the story, whether we're talking about Good Thursday or Good Friday here, but we'll refer to it as Good Friday just from most people's context. This is the day of Jesus's crucifixion. Matthew 27, 32 to 56 references, you know, the details of this death of Jesus. And I, I always encourage people on on this day, on Resurrection Sunday, you know, go back to those verses, read them slowly and thoroughly, not skim through them like you're just trying to, you know, quickly get through them. But what in Jewish context or the Old Testament is this day fulfilling? Yeah, good question. And let's let's kind of rewind a half a step here about the betrayal. This is, of course, you know, after the Last Supper, they they go out and they go to the Mount of Olives or the valley, if you will, between the city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, and we know it as the Garden of Gethsemane, which sounds like a very beautiful word. It's in a lot of hymns, most likely. But what's Gethsemane in Hebrew? And it's actually Gat Shmenim. And what that means, Gat is a press, like a wine press or an olive press. And uh, Shmenim is, is oil. 
So it's really saying the Garden of Gethsemane was known as the place of the oil pressing or the place of the wine pressing. And I think it's interesting here, right? It's, it's overnight. Jesus is praying. His disciples are, you know, have fallen asleep after this big teaching Seder they've just had. And they, they can't stay awake even one hour with him and pray. And th- Jesus is travailing here, right? Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And the divine answer, right? This uninterrupted, eternal communion Jesus has with the Father in righteousness. The Father says no. He, he says no to Jesus' prayer. It's a crazy thought, right? I mean, that could be a whole podcast. Anyway, but he says no. And so Jesus says, okay, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. But Jesus knows what's about to ensue. He understands that in the next 12 to 18 hours, he will be tortured and killed. Not only that, but actually condemned of the Father because he's going to take on the sin of the world. So he's going to be tortured in his body. He's going to die a physical death, and he will descend to hell itself as condemned of the Father. The one who's never been apart from the Father from the foundations of the earth has hell, literally has hell to pay. And we know from the scriptures, right, it says he sweated water and blood. And it's interesting, I mean, the, the anguish, but it's interesting to me that the one who's in the Garden of Gethsemane in the oil or the wine press is being pressed in a spiritual way to such a degree that there's actually blood coming out of his pores in the place of the wine press. Super interesting thought. But we know the story. Jesus is, is uh, apprehended by the authorities, and I'm skipping ahead a number of chapters in all the Gospels here. But we know that a crown of thorns is placed on his head and he is carries a cross. And then later it's carried by, by an onlooker through the streets of Jerusalem and is, is in the end hung on that cross, which was a Roman form of torture. And it was really reserved for criminals and people for whom people of whom the Roman authorities wanted to make an example. Right. Because any people could have been killed with the sword. They could have been you know, shot with a bow and arrow. Uh, they could have been tortured privately. But the cross was to say, this is an example to you, the public. Don't mess with the empire. And so Jesus is crucified. And, you know, Carly, w- without going into the specific references, I encourage our audience, Google Old Testament Old Testament prophecies about Jesus' death, you'll find literally dozens of references, not only about where he would die, that he had to die in Jerusalem, in the city of Jerusalem, but why, you know, why he would die, in essence, that he had to take away the sin of the world. We see that in Isaiah 53, and even specifically the manner in which he would die. The scriptures say, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And we know that Jesus took on our sin, Jew and Gentile alike, took that sin on and became accursed of the Father. And he's hung on a tree confirming that he was accursed. How do we know Jesus took on our condemnation? Because he was crucified. Cursed is everyone who who was hung on a tree, who is hung on a tree. It's a scriptural truth. And so we don't have time today, but I really want to encourage everyone, unpack those scriptures about the manner in which Jesus dies, the manner in which he's crucified. But we know this is happening. What about the timing? What about when it happens? I believe when it says this is the day of preparation, right? In essence, they took his body down and they buried him in the tomb after he gives up his spirit, after he he dies, a bodily death here, is, is physically dead. And they quickly put him in the tomb and it says because it was the day of preparation. Well, what's being prepared for? I believe it's Passover. So the afternoon 
of the 14th day of Nisan, right before sunset, right? Way back in Exodus, God says to the children of Israel, take that Passover lamb and just at twilight, slaughter the lamb and put its blood on the doorposts of your house. And in the, the hours before Passover, on that year when Jesus is crucified, when all the homes in the land of Israel are slaughtering a lamb without blemish and taking the blood out of a basin after killing this lamb and putting it on the doorposts of their house and then eating this meal, Jesus is dying alone. There's onlookers, but really alone, forsaken of the Father. His blood is being poured out, right? The, the soldier stuck a sword in his side and blood and water come out. And so his blood is being spilled as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world on the eve of Passover. And we know that in the afternoon, it says it was the ninth hour. So converting Jewish time in Bible times to our to our clock, it was about 3 p.m., mid-late afternoon. He gives up his spirit. And at that moment, there's a great earthquake in Jerusalem and the temple is shaken and the, the, the veil, right? This curtain, this thick ornate curtain. This wasn't like, you know, some cheap thing you buy at Target. This was the probably centuries old, ornate, heavy, invaluable temple curtain that separated the areas where the priests would minister from the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God himself was. At the moment Jesus gives up his spirit, it's confirmed by witnesses that that, that veil is torn in two. Right? Think back to Exodus. You'll, you'll put the blood on the doorpost of your house, and I'll see it, and I'll pass over. And Jesus, you know, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So at the moment when that sacrifice is complete, this veil, this necessary separation between the sinfulness of man, even the high priests, and a holy God who could not be around anything other than holiness, that separation is removed. It's incredible, like the, the convergence of the things that are happening as Jesus is, is suffering for our sins and giving up his spirit is so tremendous. It's in all four of the Gospels. They each uh, present the details. I'll say they each highlight different details with different levels of significance. But what's happening here? Was it just because we needed a symbol to inaugurate Christianity? No. And that's something, you know, a lot of Christians wear crosses around their neck. Great. But let's remember what that's saying. That's a proclamation that I need the sacrifice of the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world to cover my sin. It's a proclamation of the death of Jesus. Just like we say, right, when in, in the Christian world, when you take communion, it's proclaiming the death of Jesus until he returns, right? The celebration of proclaiming his death for our sins. Same thing with the symbol of the cross. It's saying our Savior the sinless, spotless lamb became accursed and was hung on a tree so that we could be reconciled to God. So, Carly, so much we could talk about there. But Isaiah 53, which interestingly is rarely, if ever, read in the synagogues because of its intensity and its specificity. Isaiah 53 lays out that Jesus would be bruised, that he would be lashed or striped, that he would be pierced for our transgressions, and also at the end of that chapter, that he would not stay in the grave. He would not stay dead. Psalm 16 says, your holy one, your anointed one, if you will, will not see corruption. And then again, uh, in Isaiah 53, that he was buried with sinners in his death, but he didn't stay there, that God would receive his sacrifice for our sins and raise him to life again. So the manner of the, of the crucifixion of the Messiah of Jesus and his resurrection are specifically prophesied in Isaiah 53. 
if any of your Jewish friends or family are saying, you know, uh, I don't know, convince me Jesus is the one, read Isaiah 53 and ask them, what do you see here? And more often than not, even if they aren't at that place where those blinders are removed and they can believe in Jesus as their Messiah, as the Savior of Israel yet, more often than not, people say, oh, this, this is Jesus. This is the story of Yeshua, of Jesus right here in the Old Testament. So I'm going to fast forward three days, a tomb later, to Easter or Resurrection Sunday. And if you're following in your Bible, you can turn from Matthew 27 to Matthew 28, basically. Now, you know, Mary's gone to the tomb and there's the tomb, the stone is rolled back and there's no one in the tomb. And then verse six is the uh, phrase that they often say when I go to church on Easter, which is he is not here. He has risen, just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. You know, you mentioned Isaiah 53 and the fulfillment of prophecy. So now we've we've made it to, you know, Jesus's resurrection What's the Jewish perspective of this, or where do you see this fulfillment? Yeah, and you know, churches meet on Sundays, right? Why? Because that's the biblical uh, Sabbath or rest day? No, the biblical Sabbath originally for the Jewish people, and I believe all believers are are invited into this. It's not an obligation for non-Jewish believers, but it's an invitation. The biblical Sabbath is Friday night at sunset to Saturday night at sunset. It's called the Shabbat, or really the seventh day. Um but churches meet on Sunday. Why? Well, it all comes back to this event. It's a memorial. It's a weekly remembrance of Resurrection Sunday, that first year, that Passover week and that Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, when Jesus is sought after, dead in a tomb, and he's not found that way. He's actually found very much alive, more alive than any man or woman ever has been, in fact, in a resurrected body. So what's happening here? Well, to fill in kind of the final piece of this whole Thursday versus Wednesday and and Friday versus Thursday, we know from the scriptures, Carly, that it says, and Jesus actually said himself, I'll be three days and three nights basically dead, but then I'm, but then I'll, uh, I'm not going to stay there. I'm going to be raised to life again because I'm able to be, I am the resurrection and the life. And so we have this three days and three nights. Well, the big problem on the Holy Week calendar is if Jesus dies Friday afternoon, right? Good Friday. Okay. Give it one day, Friday. All right. That's one day. Saturday's the second day, maybe 5 a.m. Sunday. You can kind of get a third day if you manipulate it a little bit, but not quite because it says it was very early just at sunrise on the third day when Mary finds him not at the tomb. Okay. So we kind of have like 2.3 days, not three. And Friday night and Saturday night don't make three nights. So there's a problem there. What's going on here? What I think was happening is that there was what we can call a double Shabbat because the day of Passover after the day before or the evening before when the lamb was slaughtered is for the children of Israel a day of solemn rest or a Shabbat. No work is to be done. So I believe Jesus died on a Thursday afternoon, which was the eve of Passover. So Thursday evening into Friday is the Shabbat of Passover, which rolls immediately into Friday evening and Saturday, which is the weekly Shabbat. Shabbat is never canceled on the Jewish calendar and never preempted by any other holiday. You can't un-Shabbat a Shabbat. It's impossible in, in the Jewish faith and in, 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 the, in the biblical narrative. So Thursday night, Friday, Friday night, Saturday, and the earliest that these women could come to the tomb to actually work, to, to care for the deceased Jesus body as they were planning to do before they found him not there, was Sunday morning. 
this first day of the week on the Jewish calendar. So if you look at it that way, then you have Thursday afternoon, Friday afternoon, Saturday afternoon, three days, and Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, three nights, very early on the first day of the week before that fourth day, Jesus is raised to life. So Resurrection Sunday, I believe, literally is Resurrection Sunday. It was the first day of the week. The scriptures are clear. I think we got it a little bit wrong on Good Friday and Monday, Thursday. But again, the day doesn't matter so much as our faith and our confidence in what happened and what was being accomplished for our sake, for the sake of Israel and all those who would call upon the name of the Lord. So the resurrection. Great. The resurrection is awesome. It's why we celebrate Easter, Easter eggs, candy. No, 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 no. We have to be very careful here because, you know, Carly, there's so many, you know, even if you if you press a Jewish person, they might give you, and actually in the Muslim world too, who is Jesus, right? Well, he's a good teacher. Well, he was a great rabbi. He was a peacemaker. Uh, he was misguided, but he meant well. It's impossible. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. He's making himself equal with God. He's saying he has authority for, to forgive sins. He's saying that death could not rule over him. He is was seen by the disciples, right, as sitting with Moses and Elijah, <laughs> on the Mount of Transfiguration up near the Galilee, and more and more and more, you can't say these things and them not be true in Judaism unless you're a heretic. And if you're a heretic, you deserve to be stoned. You deserve to die. And that is what's happening. You know, we tend to vilify the rabbis. But what was happening here was these rabbis who didn't have, the, the blinders weren't removed, and either because of unbelief or pride or envy, they couldn't see that Jesus was who he said he was, according to Jewish faith. He needed to be killed. He needed to be either stoned or crucified or something, but he was a heretic deserving of death. So the resurrection not only confirms our forgiveness of sins, but it confirms that Jesus is everything he said he was. Because if he can conquer death and the grave, then surely he can conquer sin. Surely he can conquer disease. Surely he can be all who he said he was as the king of Israel and the promised Messiah. And surely in a day yet to come, he can overcome oppressive armies threatening and trying to exterminate Israel and the Jewish people. So the resurrection of Jesus confirms our forgiveness and it confirms his messiahship. It's huge what's happening here. And Paul says, you know, what's the gospel, right? How do we define the gospel in an elevator speech? Paul talks about it in Corinthians. He says that Yeshua the Messiah or Jesus the Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised to life the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to hundreds of witnesses. The hundreds of witnesses who come forward and who the New Testament writers reference are confirming the resurrection of Jesus, that they saw him in a resurrected body, walking through walls, ministering to crowds, eating food, talking with men and women who knew him and who recognized him. Why? Because it was important that beyond any shadow of a doubt, Everything he said he was, was confirmed in his resurrection and in those weeks following his resurrection when he continued ministering on earth. So, okay, we've made it to Resurrection Sunday. Just bottom line this for our Christian audience. I heard you say earlier, you know, Jesus did not invent a new religion, which is something that some people think, you know, oh, we're Christian because, you know, Jesus came. So just what's the what's the bottom line takeaway? Jesus didn't show up at a random point in history and do what he did randomly on random dates on the Jewish calendar or the Roman calendar that just happened to work out well for the New Testament writers. He wasn't inventing a new religion. The time he came on the scene 
that he died as the Passover lamb on the eve of Passover during Passover week, that he re-entered, that he entered Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna, that he was buried in a tomb according to Isaiah 53 in the same manner as the prophets foresaw and promised he was buried in that way and that he resurrected was the fulfillment of promises made to Israel. And that was the New Testament writers, at least the gospel writers, primary concern was to say, hey, this isn't Jesus, the inventor of Christianity. This is Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, who in his death and resurrection opened the way to salvation, not only for our people, Israel, but for all people who would call upon his name in spirit and in truth. So that's the bottom line is the fact, the biblically confirmed fact, fact that Jesus, that that he died and was resurrected, that he suffered and died and was resurrected during Passover week in around 33 AD, give or take, is the confirmation and the fulfillment of something, not uh, a new invention out of nowhere. Well, that's a great takeaway, especially this week as people are celebrating, you know, the the main point that we agree on between the two of us, though we're both, you know, one's Jewish and one's a Gentile, that Jesus is our savior. So, um, to our audience, I hope you grabbed something out of that. Next year, maybe we should do a podcast on each day and go deeper into each day. But as I mentioned earlier, one of the things that we do here is we offer this coffee directly from Ethiopia, which is where we minister to many Jewish people, bringing them humanitarian aid and the good news of Jesus. You can actually opt in to win a free bag of that coffee every month. You can do that by texting JG. J for Jew, G for Gentile to 474747. I and mean, you'll be entered to win and we pick a monthly winner every single month. So go ahead and do that if you're interested. If you want to hear more of these episodes, you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We also love if you give us a review. That helps us. It helps other people find the podcast when you do that. If this podcast has content that you feel like your friends or family would like to hear, go ahead and share it with them. You can also follow us and engage with us on social media at the handle A Jew and a Gentile Discuss. Leave any questions or comments you have, and we'll try to answer those in upcoming podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. We love engaging with you, and we're really trying to bring the content specifically to you. So thanks for listening, and tune in next week for another episode. This show is a production of Jewish Voice Ministries International.